Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Exodus how Moses was the servant of the Lord and how God is the Lord God of the Hebrews. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching. Now, if you follow along here in Exodus chapter 3, as I read from verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and have seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews have met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt, with all my wonders which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, it shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. Now, verse 18 is where we are right now. And this is a very, very important verse. It's very significant as to the details that God told Moses when we read this to see how God very carefully set the stage. He says, and they shall hearken to thy voice. And he says, thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say. So it's thou shalt come with the elders, and ye shall say, Unto him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Now let us go, beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. There are two very important statements in verse 18, and they are, who's going to come? Thou shalt come and the elders of Israel. And the second statement is, and ye shall say. See, in these two statements, what we see here is God giving to Moses precise directions for exactly who should come to this meeting with Pharaoh and what specifically should be said at the meeting with Pharaoh. And what's crystal clear from verse 18 is that God was not saying to Moses that he should just go meet with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and just just wing it. God was not saying to Moses, well, you just go into the meeting with Pharaoh and don't bother doing any preparation. Just spin on the fly. Just say whatever comes into your mind and let it go that way. He wasn't doing that. God was not leaving it up to Pharaoh for who to bring to the meeting or what to say. God was very specific with Moses. And from verse 18, we see how important it was for God to have just the right persons at the meeting with Pharaoh. And from verse 18, we see how important it was for God to have Moses say just the right words to Pharaoh. In other words, what we see when we look at this verse 18 is God not only directing Moses what to say to Pharaoh, but God was directing Moses for who to bring to this meeting. So in this role, we see God in this role here of pre-directing the scene. And God was doing this by painting for Moses the picture of the scene before it happened. 
that he was to arrange for all this all-important meeting with Pharaoh. So what we see as we look at verse 18 is God directing. And he's directing the setting of the stage. He's directing the plan for how the stage should look. And he's putting this all together for Moses before he goes to Pharaoh. So what we see here in verse 18 is God in the role of a behind-the-scenes director. God is a behind-the-scenes director. We see him taking this definite role God does of being the the behind-the-scenes director as he tells Moses. Now, Moses, you say exactly these words when you go to meet with Pharaoh. And so God, as this behind-the-scenes director, it wasn't enough for Moses to go alone to Pharaoh. God, the -the behind-the-scenes director, is calling for Moses to go with all the elders of the Jewish people, and they should stand there with Moses, and, and so that Moses has the clear picture of how this is to appear before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And then we see with the words, and you shall say unto him, how God, the -the behind-the-scenes director again, is telling Moses that he alone is going to be the one to speak. And then we see how God told Moses the exact words that he was to say. He says, Moses, here's your script. Memorize it. Learn it like a director would. He says, says, the first thing you say is the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Now let us go and beseech thee three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. We can imagine how Moses followed this direction of God, the behind the scenes director. And he was, Moses was thinking, when I go there, I've got it. I understood what God told me to do. I'm following exactly what God, my director, told me to do. I've got all the elders with me. I've got my words down. I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to speak exactly the words that God told me to speak. We should freeze that picture of Moses there and see ourselves like we're Moses. And just as Moses had God as his behind-the-scenes director, so do we. And just as God wanted to be the -the behind-the-scenes director for Moses, so does he for us. And when we speak to our lost pharaohs, when we speak to the lost, we should be like Moses. And we should be thinking, I have God as my -the behind-the-scenes director. God is definite on what he wants us to say to the lost, just as God was definite on what he wanted Moses to say. God is definite in what he wants us to say to the lost. Even though he did it perfectly, Moses did it perfectly, it didn't work. It did not work to get Pharaoh to let the people go. Even though everything was perfect, but Pharaoh did not let the people go. That's a lesson for us. That's a lesson for us because if Moses walked out of that meeting and said to himself, I don't know what happened. I must have done something wrong because Pharaoh didn't obey. Pharaoh didn't believe. Pharaoh didn't comply. Then if Moses did that, we would step in and we would say, Moses, no, Moses, you did everything right. You did everything like you were supposed to. You followed God perfectly. It's not about you, Moses. Moses, you should not evaluate yourself based on the response of Pharaoh. And that's true of us. That's true of us also. The response of those we speak to has nothing to do with how good a job we did. We can perfectly obey God like Moses. We can do a good job 
and say exactly what he told us to say. And if the lost do not believe, that has no bearing on whether or not we did our job. It had no bearing on whether or not Moses did his job, the fact that Pharaoh did not believe. And seeing God in this picture as the -the behind-the-scenes director and Moses following God's instructions perfectly, and then Pharaoh still not letting the people go, it shows us that we should never view the response of the lost as any indication of our own success or not. We succeed when we have brought the gospel to the lost And the response of the lost has no bearing on whether or not we did our job. It has no bearing on whether or not we were successful. We're successful when our behind-the-scenes director says, good job, you brought the exact words. We brought the gospel to the lost faithfully from the Bible. God's exact words. We did it. That's our success. Now, next we see that what God told Moses to say. It's interesting. In verse 18, he says, first of all, Moses, the first words that are to come out of your mouth are these, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. So God tells Moses to identify God with this new title. This is a new title. This is new. We haven't seen this before in the Bible. This is the first time God has this title. And he says, the Lord God of the Hebrews. Moses was to tell Pharaoh that the Lord met with Moses and the elders. He didn't say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Don't you go in there, Moses, and say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, because that would be, you would be saying, you got your gods and we have our God. Your gods are the same as our God. Our God is the same as your gods. No, no, no. Moses was told, don't you go in there and say that you have just another God like the God of the Hebrews. God did not say the God of the Hebrews because God did not want to imply, well, we're just uh, going to be uh, all gods are equal. The gods of the Egyptians are as powerful as the God of the Hebrews. No, that was not what Moses was to say. It was very important that Moses was not to start off by saying the God of the Hebrews. But what Moses was to say was the Lord God of the Hebrews. The point was, God was the Lord above all other gods. And that's the great point that will be the take-home message when Pharaoh finally does let Israel go. What God will do to the gods of Egypt will make it clear to everyone that God is above all gods, that he is the Lord over all gods. And one person that's going to come to understand that title of God the Lord God of the Hebrews, will be later, will be Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Because after seeing what God will do to the gods of the Egyptians in Egypt, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, we're going to see him coming up in Exodus 18, where we read these words in verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. And so that's how Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, 
was going to come to understand this term, the Lord, God of the Hebrews. Another person who is going to come to understand the title of God as the Lord, God of the Hebrews, is going to be King David. And he's going to say in Psalm 95, verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And Psalm 135, 5, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. And if we are to successfully get the takeaway message from the book of Exodus, we'll understand that God is the Lord God of the Hebrews. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Pharaoh did not know that the God of the Hebrews is the Lord and that he's God. And there are many people today who are like Pharaoh who do not know that the Lord is God. There are many people today who are like Pharaoh who do not know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. There are many people today who are like Pharaoh who do not know that the Lord Jesus Christ made them and requires them to live in obedience to him. And there are many people today who are like Pharaoh who will come to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, but hopefully they won't be like Pharaoh and they'll come to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is God before it's too late to be saved by him. Now, in verse 18, we see God proclaiming his title. It's like God steps up and, and, and he's happy to have this title, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And God wanted for his new title to be the first words that Pharaoh was to hear from Moses. First words Pharaoh should hear, the Lord, God of the Hebrews. And we've seen that it's a remarkable proclamation that God has made for his title because first, The Lord God of the Hebrews expresses a truth that Jehovah is, as King David said in Psalm 95.3, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. See, to say the Lord God of the Hebrews explains that he's just not another God, equal with all the other gods, but he's a great God, he's a great king above all gods. To say the Lord God of the Hebrews expresses the truth, like we read in Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Every knee, what you can see, what we can see, and what we can see. Every knee bow. Why? Because he is a great God. He is the king above all gods. So we have to keep in mind that God wanted this new title the Lord God of the Hebrews, to be proclaimed to the king of Egypt and to the Egyptian people. And by God proclaiming his title of the Lord God of the Hebrews to the Egyptians, it emphasized a great privilege that the Jewish people had compared to the Egyptians. See, by proclaiming his title, the Lord God of the Hebrews, to a non-Hebrew people, the Egyptians, it really emphasized what Paul called the great advantage that the Jewish people have in Romans 3, 1 through 2, when Paul said, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And then he answers it in verse 2. Much every way, chiefly, 
because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. This is what Paul called the great advantage of the Jew. And when Paul considered the question exactly, what are the advantages that the Jew has? What are the advantages of the Jew? Paul said that there are many advantages of the Jew, which he expressed with these words, much every way. But then Paul considered what was the number one, what was the ichiban, what was the chief advantage among all the advantages of the Jew. And without a doubt, Paul stated, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. This verse tells us that we were considering here in Romans that the Bible is called the oracles of God. The oracles of God are the speakings of God or what we call the words of God or just short, the word of God. And God made one people responsible for his word. And he committed to one people the writing down of those words of God for the rest of the world. And God made one people responsible for, and he committed to one people the preservation, the preserving of those words of God for the rest of the world. So when you go to Israel and you go to the monument of the scroll and you go to that building and you see the Dead Sea Scrolls right there in the heart of the land of Israel, it's a message chiefly that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And that one people that God chose to record and to preserve his words for the rest of the world is the Jewish people, is the Jew. And therefore, Paul says, what advantage then hath the Jew, and what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. But there were other advantages, other advantages of the Jewish people. And Paul describes them in Romans 9, 4 through 5, where he says, he calls them Israelites, he says in Romans 4 through 5, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So here we have a list of really eight advantages. The the verses in Romans 9 or 7, and the ones in Romans 3 or 1. And when we list them all out, the advantages that the Jew had from God, we see number one, responsible for bringing the word of God to the world. They received the word of God from God, and they were responsible to bring it to the world. Number two, they were adopted as a people of God. Number three, they had the glory of God that resided in their tabernacle and in their temple. Number four, they had the covenants of God that God made with them. Number five, they had the law that God gave to them. Number six, the service of God in their tabernacle and in their temple. Number seven, the promises that God made with them. And number eight, that through them, or to them first, the Messiah came for the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great impact of Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God came first in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to the Jewish people. Great advantages, but all those advantages, they centered in one person, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all those advantages brought 
the greatest benefit to those individual Jews who received the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the same token, all of those advantages that brought the greatest loss to those individual Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ because it all centered and centers around him. That's why the fact that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest scandal in the universe. But the rejection of the majority does not change the fact that the Jewish people were greatly advantaged or privileged compared to other people. And that's what's being expressed by God. Well, he told Moses to say his title, the Lord God of the Hebrews. And Moses told the Jewish people to consider the privileges and the advantages that God gave to them. He told the Jewish people to consider their advantages or their privileges. In 2 Samuel 7, 23 through 24, David said this, And what one nation, or Migoi, in the earth is like the people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. And for thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. In other words, the Lord God of the Hebrews is going to take care of the greatest need of the Hebrews. And the greatest need of the Hebrews is stated in the second statement in verse 18, which is, now let us go. That was the greatest need of the Hebrews, to be set free from Egypt, slavery, to be let go. So when we put the two statements together, it looks like this. The Lord God of the Hebrews is meeting the greatest need of the Hebrews, which is to provide freedom for the Hebrews. The Lord God of the Hebrews is providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews their freedom. By standing up against Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, the king of the Egyptians, the Lord says, the Lord God of the Hebrews, which is the same as God saying to the king of Egypt that he is the king of the Hebrews, or he is, or God is the king of the Jews. So if someone was to say, where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? The answer is, providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews, which is their emancipation from Egypt. Now, that scene of the Lord God of the Hebrews, or the king of the Jews, providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews, sets the stage for the next scene, which we see in two parts, like two acts. The first act, or the first part, is seen in wise men who come to Jerusalem And they've got one question on their mind. And that question is seen in Matthew 2.2. These wise men saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And when those wise men asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? In other words, where is the king of the Jews? That was the same as asking, where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? And the answer to the question of the wise men, where is the king of the Jews, is seen in the second act, which is seen in John 19, John 19, 18 through 22, where we read, and they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title 
and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So the wise men in Act 1 asked the great question, Where is the king of the Jews? But it was Pilate in Act 2 who answered that great question with a sign that was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, and it read, this is the king of the Jews. Where is the king of the Jews? He's on a cross. Why is the king of the Jews on the cross? Because he's providing for the greatest need of the Jews. What is the greatest need of the Jews? To be saved from the judgment that their sins made them deserve for an eternity in hell. How can they be saved from this judgment? By having a sinless sacrifice to die in their place for their sins. Who is the sinless sacrifice that can save them from their sins by dying for them? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. If you'd like more information about Tom Cantor, the Friendship with God radio program, or Israel Restoration Ministries, go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us at 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening, and join us again tomorrow with Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program.